We had people in, involved in this, these dialogues from federal agencies. Okay. And um, we are hopeful that, that the Biden administration will pull the trigger on the first official act as far as the Paris Treaty goes, which is to designate a person designate a person as the national focal point for action for climate empowerment or ACE. Uh -huh. That's an official act. And that person has responsibility for two things. They're kind of an hourglass between the federal, uh, I mean, the, the subnational and the international mm -hmm. spheres. So their job is to report to the UNFCCC Paris Agreement process on progress in the United States and collaborate across the federal government to help the federal government implement the strategy across the federal agencies and so forth. But they are also the focal point for the government's interactions with civil society, with all these networks that Deb's been describing and you've been talking about, Sean. Um, and we are hopeful that they will soon be designating someone for that role. And if they do, that person's job description is going to include creating a national strategy. So that's why this, this framework is so timely. Welcome to the Environmental Transformation Podcast, where we talk with industry leaders, climate champions, and sustainability professionals who are making an impact in their businesses today. Each leader is solving complex challenges and providing solutions within their respective areas of expertise. And here's our host, Sean Grady. Hello, ET Nation. I'm excited to announce that I've updated my website that provides listeners more access to episode content and information about the podcast. Please take a moment and visit the website and sign up for email notifications and blog postings. Also, check out our sponsors page to see who supports the show. We can't thank these industry leaders enough. Finally, I would really appreciate if you would take a moment and post a review and rate the podcast episodes either from my website or from within your podcast app. This helps the podcast get more exposure on Apple Podcasts and other podcast networks. Also, please send me comments and recommendations on topics that you want to hear about. I hope you enjoy the new website, so check it out at www.seankgrady.com. Welcome to the Environmental Transformation Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Grady, and our mission is to bring you interviews with leaders in the environmental industry with the goal of providing you with information about industry trends, climate change, renewable and future energies, circular economy, regulatory topics, digital technologies, and service providers that are transforming the industry. So today's guests are Deb Morrison and Tom Bowman, recent authors of the Empowering Climate Action in the United States book from the Resetting Our Future book series. And so we're glad to have them come on. And how are you guys doing? Doing great. Thanks. Doing great well. to be here. Thank you. Uh, well, I'm, I'm excited to have the show today with you. Tom, you're a repeat uh, guest here. I'm really excited to have you back because I think our last episode was fantastic and got had a lot of really good responses from it. So I'm excited. Great. To well, it's, it's great to see you again. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, before we jump in, uh, could could you kind of both tell us a little bit about what, you know, a little bit about yourself, uh, how you ended up collaborating on this new book from the Resetting Our Future book series? And, uh, you know, just explain how that occurred. And we'll, we'll let ladies go first. Deb, why don't you get started? And Tom, you can come second. 
<laughs> Perfect. I think of it as the prettiest goes first. So there you that's go. good. Um, so um, I am a learning scientist at the University of Washington, um, and I have come from a rural uh, community in Canada and work climate change in a number of different directions as an ecologist in forestry, as an educator, um, and then got um, really concerned, honestly, about how, you know, 20 years of work in sort of thinking about climate action and doing different things in research just wasn't actually amounting to anything in the world. Um, that not at the rate that I think it needs to be happening and that the science really tells us it should be happening. Um, and also at the, the disconnect of what actions were being suggested by government and what communities that I am familiar with needed and wanted. And so um, I, you know, got a PhD in learning sciences and started exploring that and spent the last decade really deeply in that work. Um, and I'll let Tom say a little bit more maybe about himself and then we can say how we like ended up in the same, same uh, book writing project together last year. Uh, sure. So the prettiest did get to go first. Um, <laughs> I'm a communication practitioner and an entrepreneur. So I came at this uh, and really learned climate science because I was doing exhibit design for museums. And, and I also did, you know, commercial marketing and so, what's called social marketing. And like Deb, I was sort of awakened to the urgency of accelerating the pace of public engagement. And that became sort of a driving question. I sold my design firm to my employees and, and sort of set off as a consultant working on strategic communication projects for various clients, federal agencies and others. Um, and with social scientists always kind of asking the question, how do we turn the key? You know, wh what can we push on in our culture that will give us enough leverage to accelerate the pace of public ac action and, and create right. a sense of public kind of determination and empowerment? Mm -hmm. well, absolutely. I mean, yeah. And you guys have, you know, had this search sense of urgency of trying to, you know, really try to get something mm -hmm. done. Um, and uh, you guys, we're going to talk about it and dig into deep here, why and how you guys started this process. But so the book is uh, written recently, just recently was uh, released. Um, it's broken down to six chapters. And with the first mm -hmm. three chapters, kind of given the reader an understanding of how the group coalesced and, and, you know, brought the group of these climate champions, uh, should I say, together mm -hmm. to form this group. And then the meat of the book and that I've, I found was in chapter four. That's like where mm -hmm. you really got the, the, the meat and potatoes of what you guys were really trying to accomplish with this, uh, this group. Uh, and then, the, you know, last uh, two chapters, five and six, were really kind of like, you know, talking, uh, showcasing some of the contributors and then maybe, you know, what the future looks like. And so I highly recommend this book for the readers and the listeners. I'm sorry, the listeners here on the, on the, on the podcast, because it's a quick read. It's about a hundred pages long. You can knock it out in the weekend like I did. <laughs> and then you, you know, you can, you can talk, uh, you can, you know, you get, get a lot of good information about the climate, uh, initiatives here. And so, um, let's talk about this group of interested parties that formed the action for climate empowerment in that community there. Talk about that a little bit, if you could. Yeah, so there's been decades and decades worth of work in this area and um, a lot of different convenings over time, which I think one of the appendices in the book actually talks about some of that history um, that mm -hmm. all this effort's built on. 
Um, but really in the last year and a half, um, we can see things coming to a head where there's the potential for a different federal government possibly for, for you know, possibly having climate policies really start to take a big leap forward. Um, and so thinking about that and just thinking about the urgency and some of the like requirements to meet the Paris Agreement, you know, goals, like we started to really think about like, what could we do more? Um, and so we coalesced around a number of different people from really different backgrounds um, um, and professional contexts and um, coalesced a group that we call, I think, the coordinating team is how we're referring to ourselves. Okay. And um, it's just sort of an interim measure until we get a more structured sort of ACE working team in place or like some kind of, you know, entity in place that will work it. But in, in the interim, what we did is we actually tried to find a process um, that could actually listen, like listen to communities. Um, and then um, Tom and I were part of the writing team for that effort. And so we attended all the sessions and listened and a huge group of facilitators and moderators and, um, you know, it, it sounds like it was effort. like a, a you know a, a backroom private you know secret group of people that came together. And, no, and no, no. Or, how, how did this happen? Because it, you know, I, I I just first I heard about it, and yeah. so I was like, wow, this yeah. is kind of interesting. How this? Yeah. Work? Well, ahead, so sure. So the 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 foundation for this is the need that Deb described, but there is a structure for it which comes out of the UN FCCC. Uh, international treaty, which is, mm -hmm. you know, it, and one of its offspring is the Paris Climate Agreement, which says, calls on nations to create national strategies to inform and empower their publics to be engaged in, in climate solutions. Right. And so uh, building upon that, we all recognize that because we're not the federal government of the United States, we can't create the national strategy. That's an official act of the United States. But we realized we could push that process forward by creating what we call the strategic planning framework for the United States. And so this group of people came voluntarily and it, they, they came together through a whole series of network relationships and invitations and okay. invitations that begat other you know, subsequent invitations. And so it was really a volunteer effort based on relationships and trust. We worked really hard to get a diverse um, a diverse group of participants in terms mm -hmm. of their their positions in society, uh, age, race, gender, mm -hmm. profession, um, all of those. You know, we we tried to create as much of a cross section as we could, recognizing that people who chose to came were to come were people who really care about this issue, mm -hmm. and who are working and and therefore bring a lot of experience and knowledge together. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't closed. You know, it was it was the biggest tent that a group of volunteers could create. And it it turned out to be a remarkably interesting, big and really high quality uh, group. So of people. how many sessions were you guys involved with to kind of develop this this framework? Because it sounds like there was quite a few meetings and I'm assuming it was mostly virtual. Is that right? It was all mm -hmm. virtual, which actually in the <laughs> long run turned out to be a good thing, I think, um, uh -huh. because we had more participation from folks who wouldn't have had the funding to travel because we didn't have oh, funding yeah. for this. We had a small seed grant from the Spencer Foundation that allowed us to um, support 
people who didn't have the who didn't have the capacity to volunteer their time. Mm-hmm. Um, but everybody else volunteered their time. And mm-hmm. so um, I think in dialogues, there was five or six, I think, with the closing dialogue um, dialogues. Um, and then the, there was a number of planning meetings, almost weekly, I would say, maybe sometimes twice a week, planning meetings go- leading up to it mm-hmm. from all the way back, like December last, like a year before. Yeah. And those dialogues were were something really transformational, I think, for the people who, who participated. I found them to be so because the idea was that you leave your logo at the door, right? Mm-hmm. You leave your job title, your profession at the door, and you come together as equals with people who come from other professional silos and and very different life circumstances than you come from. And and the dialogues were structured so that it wasn't just a free-for-all conversation. It was purposeful conversation. But it was a conversations in which everybody was respected, equal, and all of their inputs were gathered. And so chapter four of the book, the centerpiece that, that Deb and I were the writing team for, is the report of this, of this whole process. Mm-hmm. It's called an ACE Strategic Planning Framework for the United States. Uh, and that, that's a standalone report. It's available for free online. But our publisher approached us about creating a book out of it and uh, to provide additional context because books move through the world quite differently than online reports do. They carry a certain kind of weight that online reports don't. And it Mm -hmm. gave us a chance to invite commentaries, which is chapter five, from a really diverse group of climate leaders who talk about the importance of this ACE process going forward for the country. So, okay, so... The Paris Agreement has this um, ACE planning framework that needs to be kind of established for you know uh, countries that are part of the agreement, right? Mm-hmm. And essentially, the United States, really nobody actually, it's not it's not just the United States, nobody's really established an ACE group yet to officially say, here's our strategic plan for climate change. Is that is that accurate to say? I, I think that's kind it's of shifting. the way I read it. It's shifting now. now. So there are eight or nine countries who have engaged in a national planning process. The U.S. is the first high emitting country um, to do this work or hopefully to engage in this work more as a national (laughs) strategy. Um, But folks like Austria, I would say, is like the closest comparative country in terms of a Western nation Uh um, has engaged in that. And uh, the ACE focal point in that country has been very active and, and vocal in the international stage about that work. Well, so so um, so basically, we have a bunch of concerned citizens, right? Climate, mm-hmm. you know, champions who are really concerned that realize that the United States hasn't really developed a, a formal group yet to really address this this mm-hmm. uh, requirement to be part of the Paris Agreement. And since the last administration kind of pulled us out, now we're back in. Now there's this you know urgency to actually like let's get this thing going and and you guys have essentially developed a playbook for the <laughs> new administration right to come in and just say let's start from here and pick it up from here and, and you know make it where it needs to be. Yes, um, we very <laughs> intentionally we're creating a playbook for a piece of it for a piece of it. I mean there right. are there are policies that they're pursuing the the. Uh, um, the investment in green infrastructure, for example, is something that the federal government is going to prop- try to do legislatively, regardless mm-hmm. of what we do. But the perspective that our work takes is that the greatest capacity for rapid transformation 
that's equitable and just lives in communities. Mm -hmm. It lives, mm -hmm. it lives in the context where people live. Mm -hmm. Right. And so, and so a strategy that empowers bottom-up action where people come together, learn to understand their own concerns and make choices for their own communities about their own future is a very different model than an external top-down mm -hmm. um, set of requirements that everybody has to adapt to. And we're not saying that there's no place for that, but Action for Climate Empowerment, or ACE, is kind of the place where the bottom-up and the top-down can meet. meet. So there can be a top-down strategy for empowering communities and, mm -hmm. and for aligning the work of educators and activists and strategic communicators and health professionals and businesses mm -hmm. and active community activist groups and city governments and state governments. The idea is to get everybody aligned so that the collective impact is much greater but it's not a it's not about imposing a you know a a particular methodology over everybody it's about creating the conditions that allow people to flourish where they live and i think another important point to build off that is that the goal of this is really to leverage the network. So while we were all individuals coming into this, mostly all on our volunteer time, we also represent organizations that have been working in this space for decades. And uh -huh. so like, how are we bringing not only our own organization, but all of those that we've worked with and have relationships with over the years, that then we can bring those people into relationship with new people that are part of this growing ACE community um, in ways that might be like we haven't thought of, nobody's thought of before, that we can innovate and, and do new things and learn new things from each other and maybe bridge some of the big gaps that we see that the media sort of portrays, you know, like, you know, rural America versus, you know, the green liberals. Like there, there is ways that we can bridge these boundaries when we face each other person to person. Yeah. And yeah. that's what we're really saying is that we need to work in community in relationship with each other and have decisions like more locally made, but informed by all these other networks that we can keep get people in touch with. Yeah. When I look at this, I go, Hey, you know, this climate issue is, is everybody's issue. It's not, mm -hmm. you know, it a red or, yeah. red yeah. or blue issue or, no, you know, or it's, not. Issue. it's everybody's issue. Right. You know, and Sean, <laughs> like, it's funny because I actually dug into that about the partisanship related issues. And it was so interesting because, um, you know, in 2000, the, the before 2000, there were a lot of green Republicans. And so it's it's the way it's been polarized in the last 20 years. And we have yeah. got to stop that if we're going to actually have sustainable communities. I uh, couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Well, so when we talk about the process you guys went through to really kind of like bring in all the inputs, because there's mm -hmm. a lot of inputs you were you were bringing in all kinds of people mm -hmm. from different, mm -hmm. you know, walks of life, um, you know. How important was it to get involved the you know the black indigenous and people of color the the, the I guess you call it the bitco you know um, category of, of individuals that can really help to you know assimilate them into this whole community input I mean this you know this process how how did you how did you do that and how important was it to the process I think it was pretty critical um, in in terms of ensuring that there is space and um, like we don't, we don't give people agency, we just open up space for them to exhibit. And so like 
that was really needed because especially in the climate debate at the national um, level for the last couple decades, mm-hmm. <laughs> feels like, and there, there has been a real disconnect between what communities who are marginalized and who are often feeling the most, the strongest impacts of climate change right now, um, for them to be able to actually have a voice in what decisions are getting made and what they need, that has been really challenging. Um, and I would say like we often, this, this issue is often portrayed as <clears throat> it's for um, BIPOC communities or, you know, and only for them. It's not like the amount I've personally learned by working with different black indigenous people of color is unbelievable. And like it broadens everyone's perspective and innovations that can go on in any location. I would yeah. imagine you found that they have the same concerns that, you know, other people have, right? I mean, they just, they're, they're just maybe more affected in certain ways because maybe they're where they live is more impacted. I'd say they're more resilient right now because they've lived in a longer state of oppression where they've had mm. to deal with less mm-hmm. And so they're much more resilient and innovative right now. And, gotcha. you know, that's, it's both a, a gift and a, and a, you know, a weight that they bear. And we should be really clear the the mentality that you hear from, um, from the national discussion often is, uh, is that the, the power elites are going to provide a solution for the rest of us. It's almost like, you know, we're children and they're the adults. Right. And, yeah, right. and we've all been, as we talked about the other book, um, there's this impression that climate change is so complicated that only technical elites can deal with it and the mm-hmm. rest of us can't. And so it creates this false narrative mm-hmm. that there's wisdom, experience, and knowledge at the top, mm-hmm. and there's ignorance, confusion, and apathy at the bottom. And when you, when you create real face-to-face dialogue with people from these communities who have been shoved to the sides and treated as if they know nothing, what you discover is this incredible richness of experience, knowledge, and wisdom that is, that is invaluable to their future. And collectively, it's invaluable to all of ours, but it becomes really clear that that's not the property of the federal government to go out and mine okay. and extract for for the purposes of others, right? It's it establishes a real respect for honest relationship mm-hmm. and and collective problem solving that is respectful, and in a way, that's the giant gift of ACE. Not mm-hmm. only does it give us our best shot at at creating a, a future that's with a with the most stable climate we can create. But it also transforms our sense of power relationships and and the kind of it helps us overcome these really destructive impressions and thoughts that we have about the relationships between different segments of our society. Mm-hmm. And the fears that we have related to that, you know, yeah. they're yeah. just not founded when you start working with people as people and like really working across these boundaries that we, we see socially. Yeah. Breaking down, like you said, leave your logo at the door. You know, you're mm-hmm. breaking that down. You're just, hey. We're, you know, we're all red blooded Americans or, you know, sort of people. So we all have the same needs to, you know, survive and things like that. So we need to, you know, we have the same interests. So, well, let's, let's dive into a little bit about uh, some of the discoveries that you guys, you know, talked about. So in chapter two, you had, you know, discoveries and assumptions. Talk about some of the assumptions that emerged from the ACE, uh, the ACE strategic planning framework conversations. Sure. One of them is that, 
uh, this group is a group that accepts the reality of climate science, that climate change is real mm -hmm. and that it's urgent. And, and we might as well name that outright because you're not going to easily attract climate deniers into a conversation like this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, Deb, do you want to, don't let sure. me just dominate yeah. this. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's okay. I won't. <laughs> so, um, yeah. And, and the idea that justice itself is integral to being able to have a sustainable climate future, um, because if we can't solve our justice issues as we start to solve our climate issues, we're always going to have this persistent challenge of, of economy and, and just deep-seated ways of seeing the world that are going to be really problematic. And so getting at justice at the same time as we're working towards solving climate change actually may be the way that we solve climate change. So um, because we can hear and see different perspectives that we wouldn't otherwise be open to if we, if we didn't open ourselves to relationships with people that have been historically and are currently oppressed. So that's mm -hmm. really a key piece. And sort of parallel to that and with that is the idea of who's making decision for whom and who's designing so the idea that we actually have to have really um, some big shifts actually in, in how we decide who's at the table and who gets to de decide, you know, what, what a solution looks like for a given community. Hey listeners, if you're looking for a drilling and an environmental contracting firm to help you delineate the extent of contamination at your site, well look no further than Cascade Environmental. They are the only field services contractor with the personnel and equipment needed to work with you from project conception to completion. Cascade has over 37 offices across the country and offers a huge range of environmental and geotechnical drilling, site characterization, and remediation services. Thanks to their technical expertise, huge fleet of equipment, and nationwide coverage, Cascade is a great choice to support your environmental and infrastructure project needs. To learn more, check them out at www.cascade-env.com. That's www.cascade-env.com. Are there any other assumptions that kind of popped up? They were like, I didn't anticipate that one being, you know, kind of a prevailing, you know, idea or issue. I, I think the the idea that our the, the richness of knowledge and innovation at the community level is kind of surprising when you actually confront it. And the reason I say that is because um, I've been a small business owner and my innovations are treated like a curiosity, a little idiosyncrasy that doesn't mean much, right? And it's an anecdote. And when you think about innovations in Orlando, Florida, or in Greensburg, Kansas, you think that they're anecdotal and they don't amount to anything. But when you get people together, you mm -hmm. discover that that when you start sharing and pooling, mm -hmm. there is enormous capacity there that is mm -hmm. that is in many ways our greatest asset, and yet mm -hmm. it's an asset we hardly ever acknowledge. So it's been uh, siloed, so to speak, in, in its mm -hmm. little uh, way of we, that the, those regions or those pockets of knowledge are being, you know, deploying those solutions, but they're not getting out, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. And I yeah. think that there's another assumption in in line with that one is is the idea of that we have responsibility to place, right? People live in communities and are very connected to their communities, not everywhere, because there are some people that are more mobile and disconnected, but 
many people live in places where they have a deep connection to their environment and to the other people who live there. And mm -hmm. that kind of knowledge that's place connected, I've often thought, like Tom just said, I've often thought of that to be kind of unique and, you know, eclectic. But it turns out that there's a commonality of that idea that we have place connected knowledge and that we all value that place connected knowledge. And that when somebody comes in from the outside, they're trying to put a general solution on us and we push back on it because we're like, yeah. no, this you is you our don't know, place. You know, yeah, you don't yeah. know our environment. Yeah. You get away. That's yeah. right. You know, <laughs> and that's that's the truth that I think was really important for everybody to feel and, and recognize that it comes from different histories, from different trajectories of where we live or who we are. But many, many people in the effort, I think, felt that and, and saw that. Yeah. And there was one, I just want to name one of the indigenous leaders who was part of this process mm -hmm. observed, in fact, that it's it's not true that everybody wants to be brought into the market economy. Mm -hmm. A lot of indigenous communities prefer not to be brought into um, the market economy. And that means that solutions that are that are driving for economic growth in the way we normally think of it Doesn't are inappropriate in those yeah. communities, right? Yeah, and and yeah. there's no reason that those communities should be forced to right. change their way of life. Mm -hmm. Their worldview is different in that perspective and they want something different. They don't want, you mm -hmm. know, what this economy, economic approach is. So yeah, it mm -hmm. makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Well, okay. And so in chapter three, you guys get into engaging with additional dialogue and, and with partners, mm -hmm. you know, who were some of the communities and partners that uh, you were focused on talking with uh, and who were some of the parties that may have been left out in this whole in ACE engagement? Because I'm sure there was a few, right? Yeah. Our networks only reached so far. Uh, in and, the, yeah, sort of time and effort, yeah, the time right? and lack of resources are normal yeah. things. Um, and I think this is the interesting thing about this approach is it's a it's a constantly evolving, expanding approach. Mm -hmm. So like we touched on some of the initial sort of easy to reach organizations that we had already existing relationships with, and we went out from them and like brainstormed. Um, so so many organizations were, um, you know, um, different indigenous or um, black or people of color organizations that we wanted to try and connect with and make sure that they're heard in this process. Um, we looked for groups that were really involved in ACE-like work. So folks involved in outreach centers, um, lots of different people involved in informal education or education spaces. Um, so a lot of that, there were definitely areas that we weren't as strong with. We did have some connections in business, but we didn't go down that rabbit hole as deeply as we, we should and could potentially. And the same for, I would say the scientific community, we had many scientists involved, but there's a whole nother area of that we could expand into that community more. Um, and then of course, um, more broadly across rural networks. We did have a lot of people um, involved who lived in rural setting, but not necessarily that represented rural organizations per se. So um, I think that is something that would be really helpful to dig more into. Things like the 4-H clubs, you know, and like that yeah. kind of thing would be really Extension great. Extension offices and mm -hmm, places, sure. people like that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah, maybe thinking, some of the farming folks too, I would yeah, say. Yeah, farm communities would be big because, I mean, they're, they're mm -hmm. caretakers, conservation groups as well. Mm -hmm. Like, uh, what about, mm -hmm. you know, 
the Isaac Walton League. We had like some that, right? of those. Yeah, we had some okay. of those groups involved, and more and more since have like come into our network in different ways. Um, yeah, biodiversity and and land conservation efforts. Yeah, yeah, one comes to mind is like the the Teddy Roosevelt Conservation Partnership. Mm -hmm. They're they're kind of a mm -hmm. overall kind of bigger nonprofit that a lot of the smaller nonprofits or other nonprofits, you know, kind of umbrella under mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, trout unlimited, you know, pheasants mm -hmm. forever. Right. You know, I actually just that... saw something about ducks unlimited and I was yep, explaining it to my daughter and I'm like, right. Like <laughs> yeah. there's vested interest in these different spaces that we yeah. need to make sure that yeah. we're connecting with and leveraging. But again, yeah. we're really trying to figure out in all of those groups, like, what is it about it that will help around that kind of education outreach and all those organizations do some piece of it so who in that big organization is doing that piece mm -hmm. that we need to connect mm -hmm. to yeah no that's good well i mean that's a <laughs> that's a lot of work let's be honest right you guys <laughs> just, that's a full-time job you can spend years like doing this people yeah right, right. Yeah. i mean it could take a i mean you could be this could be like a whole department just that all we yeah. do is try to gather information from these types of you know people and entities um <clears throat> to, to you know form and create this uh strategy as best it can yeah so that's great um well, let's get into chapter four because chapter four seemed to me like that was, you know, it was a, it was a big one. And uh, mm -hmm. I mean, it's the meat of the book really. And, and it really has a lot of segments. I thought they were really good. And um, so, you know, uh, it lays out the planning strategic framework that the mm -hmm. ACE community developed and that, you know, the United States government, they could use it if <laughs> right away. Sounds like, I mean, or at least parts of it. Right. Um, as part of the national focal point for their climate action enforcement, the ACE group. So tell me about, um, you know, has, you know, the Biden administration had any response to this, uh, this document yet? We had people in, involved in this, these dialogues from federal agencies. Okay. And um, we are hopeful that, that the Biden administration will pull the trigger on the first official act as far as the Paris Treaty goes, which is to designate it a person designate a person as the national focal point for action for climate empowerment or ACE. Uh -huh. That's an official act. And that person has responsibility for two things. They're kind of an hourglass between the federal, uh, I mean, the, the subnational and the international mm -hmm. spheres. So their job is to report to the UNFCCC Paris Agreement process on progress in the United States and collaborate across the federal government to help the federal government implement the strategy across the federal agencies and so forth. But they are also the focal point for the government's interactions with civil society, with all these networks that Deb's been describing and you've been talking about, Sean. Um, and we are hopeful that they will soon be designating someone for that role. And uh -huh. if they do, that person's job description is going to include creating a national strategy. So that's why this, this framework is so timely. Because if that happens, it provides a, a really important structure. For and some that, reason, this name is coming to my mind, uh, Tom. You know, John Kerry. Didn't they just mm -hmm. appoint him like the global uh, ambassador for climate or something like that? I mean, climate wouldn't that be boy, it? I think he is the climate yes. envoy for the United States. Or something States. like that. Yeah, right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Kerry. Kerry actually has been supportive. He spoke in Madrid at the COP twenty-five meeting last year. Um, around in the ACE dialogue, so the Action for Climate Impairment dialogue. Um, and he is like a very well-versed statesman on the whole range of climate issues. 
Um, but this ACE piece is one article of the entire Paris Agreement. And so there would be somebody, an ACE focal point inside the US government that's designated and tasked with this particular article of the Paris Agreement. And gotcha. that has yet to happen, but we're hopeful that it will be imminent. Yeah, I didn't mean to cut you off, Tom, there, but it just... Well, I, I no, no, please. Um, but I would say that that it speaks to one of the things that we wrote about in the framework, which is every country has a different set of national circumstances. And so there's a section of the report that describes the national circumstances in the United States. And, and it says that we are a very pluralistic society with different mm -hmm. values frames, different language that we use, different hopes and ambitions. But we are also a society that has multiple different layers of jurisdiction for decision-making, right? And mm -hmm. because of that, um, that means that the ACE work we do is inherently not top down. It's got to, it really has yeah. to work at every level of organization and decision making in the country from organizations to municipalities to regional governments, state governments, tribal governments. Um, and it isn't only government, right? It's businesses, it's, mm -hmm. it's community groups, it's homeowners associations, it's households, sure. it's everything. So, so we really have to embrace, I think, for a strategy to work in the United States, this plurality of decision-making structures mm -hmm. and find ways to influence all of those structures. And that's really what the recommendations in the, in the framework document speak to, that real diversity of authorities and interests and capacities. Mm-hmm. That's and why really, there are so many. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and really trying to get people to start thinking, like to just move beyond the debate about climate change is happening, climate change isn't happening. And like, I'm so done with that debate. Like what we're really talking about is what solutions do you want to put on the table? And how do you want to like think and work toward that as a community? You have a voice in it, or you can step back and say, you don't even want to engage in the conversation. So, yeah. and then others will come in and make those decisions for you. So like, this is a, this is a process that hopefully will really allow us to like have communities really deeply engaged in their own work and defining solutions that work for them. So we need the Biden administration to appoint the national focal point is the yeah. first thing that's going to kind of like jumpstart this whole process. That will definitely help. Mm -hmm. And then at that point, you know, I mean, they're going to, they got to, you know, chart the course for the strategic plan. Um, however, you know, they've got this little playbook in their back pocket they can start with, at least, mm -hmm. you know, get them started. It's not probably the end all be all, but it's definitely going to be like, a, a, you know, a good starting point, right? They don't have to like start yeah. from scratch. <laughs> yeah. And as we like, we, we wrote, I think we let the book go in December 1st, I think it was. Um, mm -hmm. And since December 1st, there actually has been a significant amount of work done um, to further this kind of effort, to extend oh. the coalitions of networks, to continue like, you know, briefing different policymakers, doing a whole bunch of work, coalition building in different ways. Um, and so that goes on outside of the federal government and right. the community-based entity that is the ACE team. Um, continues to work toward this effort and expand and do that work. So the question is, will the federal government actually enable and fund the effort more deeply? And and because right now it's still all being done as a volunteer basis and not just the federal government. I would actually also say 
philanthropic organization need to dig in and understand that this mm -hmm. kind of backbone funding for coordinating this kind of effort it's a yeah. thing that also needs to be funded. Yeah, so. though I, I I caught that in the book. I, yeah, yeah. I, I read that, and when they, when it was brought up, I was like, well, you know, that that's a good point. Uh, and mm -hmm. Deb, you bring up a great point because there's a lot of work, a lot of energy that goes into this, and mm -hmm. you know, you don't want to just get it going and all of a sudden, hey, we're tapped out. We got to stop because you know we have a day job or we got to eat, we got to yeah. pay bills. You know, it's exactly. Like, yeah, something. and who can be involved is really dependent on who has the privilege to be able to like eat right. still and do this right. And that's right. not the way we want to be thinking about equity right. in this. So we need it funded. Mm, yeah. There's also, uh, just imagine though, also um, what this might mean to philanthropic organizations who are investing millions yeah. of dollars every year in oh, yeah. various ACE-related activities mm -hmm. that are not aligned strategically. Everybody's making investments mm -hmm. according to their own mission, their own proclivities, their own assumptions about nature of change, their own relationships that they have. And, and so it's a fragmentary scattershot approach. And if we can if we can marshal the resources to convene them and present what an ACE strategy mm -hmm. offers and the insights that came pouring in from grantees, you know, mm -hmm. small organizations that just don't have the technical mm -hmm. capacity or the time to compete for grants mm -hmm. or uh, organizations that are doing good work that can get funding for pi pilot projects, but they can never get That's funding to take them to scale yeah. or organizations that are, um, that do project-based grants and they're great and they're successful, but there's no infrastructure funding to carry them over until the next grant kicks in to pay the rent and pay the salaries and keep people mm -hmm. engaged. So you find all these talented people with lots of experience who move in and out of climate work mm -hmm. because they engage when they can find funding and they go do something else when they can't. Yeah. Um, right. And so, not and consistently so it's keeping it going though, right? Right. And so yeah. imagine the benefit to philanthropic philanthropic organizations to say, hey, I can spend we can spend our dollars more wisely and more mm -hmm. effectively and achieve our own goals. So so what we really need is like, you know, Bill Gates to, you know, Bill and Melinda really kind of fund a big component of this. <laughs> I mean, it I would mean, honestly be, honest. be amazing. It would be <laughs> yeah. amazing. And and I've been involved with another type of grant, this coherence around this that has been funded out eclectically out of different NSF budgets. And actually by the Gates Foundation too, they've funded pieces of it. And those type of coherent system-wide kind of efforts are what is needed here, but on like yeah. a times a hundred scale, because right. we're talking on, about on steroids, the whole nation. Right. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, right, like but it right. is really possible and there are models of how to do that. And like we well, have shown yeah. that it can go forward and it would just be so much more efficient. Like I can see a time when like, you know, people in a community are looking for interns and they're working with youth and they're working in doing some kind of reclamation activity and who knows, maybe for a shellfish industry out on the West coast here. And like, it's all related businesses involved, federal governments involved, local governments, you know, youth are involved. And all of that is like working together. Um, and those yeah. connections are just not being made. People are too siloed. Yeah, yeah. No. Well, I mean, there is a lot of money from private institutions or, or philanthropic mm -hmm. institutions, you know, you know, giving money away to other nonprofits. I mean, I think the Nature mm -hmm. Conservancy, didn't they just get like a $300 million grant from, oh, 
geez, who was it? I mean, it was huge. It was like, you know, massive. Well, Bezos gave like a hundred million away to different organizations. Yeah, right. There's another, there's like, another, drop, 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 yeah. you know, right. Well, let's, let's uh, maybe we need mm -hmm. to raise the, you know, the elevate the, uh, the, the program here a little bit. Mm -hmm. and, I mean, yeah. That's what we're doing. So we're doing today. Let's see. Let's it's keep about, going. It's, it's the old raise our game. Yeah. motto you know and, and let's honestly, raise our game totally and you know the biggest challenge i think that we face with ace is when people start talking about climate empowerment they immediately only think about youth and they immediately uh -huh. think about education uh -huh. and that is one of six components of ACE. yeah well, let, well let's get into some of those because yeah. those we got six attributes to talk about mm -hmm. but before we do Today's podcast is sponsored by Stephanie Miller, author of Zero Waste Living, The 80-20 Way, The Busy Person's Guide to a Lighter Footprint. Stephanie's business, Zero Waste in DC, provides virtual webinars and talks for organizations committed to a sustainable future. Stephanie will virtually speak with you and your colleagues about how to quickly and painlessly reduce your carbon and waste footprints. Break up your Zoom fatigue and invite Stephanie to energize your team and learn how you can have an immediate impact on the environment. I highly recommend that you buy her book. It's a great read and provides practical applications for anyone that wants to implement new ways to become more sustainable. You can contact Stephanie via her website at www.zerowastendc.com or you can contact her via email at stephanie at zerowastendc.com and check her out on her Instagram account at zerowastendc. Where does the United States stand on climate change? Where, where do you think that happens? We're back in the Paris Agreement. We're back in the Paris Agreement. I have to say, as a scientist, as an educator, and a learning scientist, I am so happy we are back in the Paris Agreement um, because you know we're trying to do something about it. And as the U.S. Yeah. is in a major emitting country, and we yeah. can sway the world. We have clout that we can leverage politically. It's been damaged in the last few years, but it can actually be sway others. And I think that that's, that's something to be proud of, but we have to work for it if we're going to be proud yeah. of it. Yeah. Yeah. Tom, what's your thoughts there? Um, I would, I would echo that. And I'd also say that the fact that, um, that president Biden named John Kerry, this climate envoy and put him on the security council, mm -hmm. made him a cabinet member mm -hmm. and appointed Gina McCarthy, the head of a new white house office on domestic climate policy. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and re-entered the Paris Agreement on day one of his administration sends enormous signals to the world and to our own, uh, to our own people and our own economy that this is a high priority. Now the now the question is how do you do it right? How do you mm -hmm. engage? Um, I live in California, which has the most aggressive climate, economy-wide climate requirements in, uh, in the United States, right? Regulations too. <laughs> sure, and we and our voters overwhelmingly defend those year after year after year at the ballot box we want to clean up our air and water you know we like our environment and uh and we are making rapid progress but it's getting harder we've picked the low-hanging fruit in california and so california has not done yet a good job with ace but they have demonstrated that you can you can approach this in an economy-wide way and make progress right and in california itself is the fifth largest economy in the world so so that's only one more metric that says there's there's a lot of potential here. Um, and the Biden administration clearly recognizes it. And so our hope is that they'll put 
you know, they'll put an ACE national focal point in place and that this, this particular aspect of climate work will start to generate momentum within the federal government and, and within the broader society. I and I think, feel, I, think, I, was, go ahead, I, think I think there's one other thing that I have to name because America is, or the United States is an incredibly diverse country, like in terms of its people, it's incredibly diverse. And because of that, we have these histories of oppression, we have these histories of differential power. But what we also have is we have understandings of what it means to engage in justice work. We, we know things, we've learned things um, mm -hmm. about what it means to engage in climate justice work, things that are different in other places in the world, right? And we actually have a lot to say to the international community about what climate justice could be, like what, what pathways like that could look like. No, that's great. I mean, you know, I do think I do see and feel that there is also a more societal awareness, mm -hmm. you know, when it comes mm -hmm. to climate change, like, you know what, no, this is really starting to become more of a, you know, mm -hmm. something to take serious. Um, mm -hmm. There's mm -hmm. starting to become a, a sense of, uh, I mean, urgency, maybe, but at least a sense of awareness where we, we need to yeah. do something and, and, and be more sustainable. I mean, and I, and I mean, think about all the con the companies in our uh, country now that are committing to, you know, mm -hmm. zero net carbon by 2035. Yeah. I mean, that's huge. That's yeah. never, Business I mean, is always like leading the way around like what yeah. can change because the market forces are forcing it. So. And, and we're seeing now financial institutions actually requiring these companies to actually, you know, you know, uh, disclose their sustainability uh, you know, uh, commitments mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. as part of investment uh, strategies, people are like, I only want to invest in people mm -hmm. that are, you know, have these mm -hmm. focused goals that line up with, you know, the individual that's actually buying. And, and, and so I, th this is really, I think there's been a huge shift mm -hmm. personally. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's been an enormous shift in the last decade. Like it's yeah. incredible. Yeah. yeah. And it's the kind of shift that gathers momentum. And mm -hmm. as people start to, you know, there's a, there's a myth in, in a lot of the social change work that says we have to change minds and then people's behavior mm -hmm. will change. It doesn't always work that way. No. Changing people's right. behavior, change their understandings, changes mm -hmm. their perceptions, changes their attitudes also. Mm -hmm. And, and it works both ways. And so as we start to see benefit, as we start to see cleaner skies and 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 all and more empowerment and better social capital, as they say, mm -hmm. is a fancy mm -hmm. word for better relationships between people. Um, these kinds of things sort of become our new social norms, and people expect it, and we move faster and faster. Mm -hmm. That's the great hope. Yeah, no, mm -hmm. I, I agree. Well, so you touch a little bit on these attributes, uh, Deb. Let's go into some of those real quick. And we've got you, you outlined six of them in in the chapter. Uh, in the book there. Talk about some of those and how, what are they, how are we using those to address climate crisis? Yeah. So the six attributes are education, um, training, sorry, so I'm going to forget them now, Tom. Um, <laughs> training will <laughs> help you. <laughs> education, training, public awareness, public participation, public access to information and international cooperation. I'm like, yeah, I live and breathe these things. So I can't yeah. remember this sometimes. <laughs> There you go. Um, Sorry. Yeah. So, and the language is language that's from the UN. It's from the actual original UNFCCC, and mm -hmm. in like 1992, I think it was. Um, mm -hmm. 
And so you have to consider that, right? So what we talk about is education and training now. Education itself actually is unpacked to include um, education in community, education in schools, um, outreach kind of by scientific organizations, all of that is sort of in the education to some degree. And then um, training is professional, managerial, vocational training, like on the job, in institutes, whatever, in, in all different locations. So that can be quite broad as well. Um, my brother's an iron worker, and I often think about all the work he does that is training work. That's like courses mm-hmm. and recertifications, and all of that is now actually mm-hmm. starting to be woven in with climate change learning. Um, and then public access to information is really more about like, you know, not, not necessarily just the website version anymore. And Tom's better to talk about all the calm related things because he's the communication specialist. I'm more on the education training side. So, well, yes. Yeah. Well, so, you know, it's easy to think of public access and information, meaning data sets, mm-hmm. um, summaries, animations that you'd find, for example, on NOAA's website, climate.gov and places mm-hmm. like that. But it's also the knowledge that's held by businesses, mm-hmm. the knowledge that's held by within communities. It's basically to say, let's create transparent access to all that we're learning about climate change, about our circumstances where we live, and right. critically important about the solutions. You know, there's mm-hmm. a big push in, in this framework that says education about the climate system isn't enough. We need education about climate solutions. We need education about environmental there. justice yeah. and climate justice. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it and it's about every subject in school and every and it's lifelong learning. Um, so it's about behavioral change on this side of the of the equation too. The cool thing about these things and the way we approach that there are six, right? But we help, but we clumped dialogues together with titles that that mm-hmm. drew people from different different elements, different professional silos. So otherwise, you'd see all the educators going to the education one, and all the communicators going to the public access to information one. And they'd stay in their silos and we wouldn't gain the, the cross-fertilization that happened. So, so we did one about decision-making and transformation, de- transformational decision-making in communities. That attracts everybody, right? Sure. And that's yeah. the magic of this is that you, you discover that breaking out of your silo is where the action is. Mm-hmm. No, that's mm-hmm. great. I mean, and, and just thinking, you know, the way of these attributes, I mean, I think the goal is to, I guess, create the, uh, a, I guess, a, a daily worldview of, of, mm-hmm. of an individual, which is basically, hey, I got to do things that are sustainable, right? That that have a positive impact, a green, a green impact on everything, you know, every decision I make, you know, whether that's, you know, buying, you know, a product versus, you know, t- doing an activity versus, mm-hmm. you know, recycling as much as I can. I mean, everything you're doing is within the lens of, sustainability, climate reduction, things like that. I mean, that, that, that mental process is going to have to be constantly reinforced through all these processes you're kind of going through with these attributes, I'm assuming. And it's, it's also going into this space of understanding that like we live at different scales, right? Like I'm an individual, I'm a mother, I'm a runner, (laughs) you know? So like all of those things are like my personal level and my family level of choice but I'm also an employee of an institution. And what that institution does, I have again too. And mm-hmm. so like making sure that my, my sort of, I push my institution to be consistent with what I know to be true about the world, right? 
Um, and the same about our governments, like that our governments, they represent us, right? And so, and they speak for us. And so that's also part of my action, not as an individual, but as a member of this society, as a citizen, that I actually speak to my government officials. They probably get a lot of letters from me. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, Give them some feedback, right? <laughs> Let them know how they're doing. So, yeah. and, but, but, you know, people listen and those those things are well, hey they always say the squeaky you know? wheel gets the grease right so, so you know squeaky, you, you, you gotta you, know? you gotta speak up yeah be squeaky and you know there's also a whole bunch of research that tom's alluding to in the behavioral change even just for doing now about talking about climate it changes the way people think so right. just like talking about climate in all different contexts and like not forcing it, but just in the moment of thinking about what's relevant in that moment or what you're wondering mm -hmm. about, what you want to learn, you know, those are, those are helpful things to do. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, can I just add one thing about the last element, the international cooperation element. Yeah. <clears throat> I think there's the important thing there. I'm very much the local community person. Um, I kind of feel like I've been slowly dragged into larger systems level work and policy work. Um, but I have found value in, in the international cooperation effort. And so I continue to be in that space. And I sit on a couple of different UN level um, panels and committees to be able to share across the globe about what's happening and how things should be. And it's amazing what is going on in the world. Um, and oh, yeah. still, we actually don't have a good system for sharing how we're learning about it, which is what ACE is, right? And so that is actually the whole series of conversations starting um, as of today, actually, at the international level that are really trying to expand those conversations. And this next decade is a center of focus for that. So we can be bright spot world to show what can be done and we can share our learnings that we do locally into that space um you know as like gifts for the world you know um and we can learn from others and what they've done so i think that participation is really important better watch out deb you're going to be like uh, hired to be work on some u.n <laughs> committee here soon she'll, she'll yeah. take over the world um, <laughs> as far as i can tell nobody's going to pay me for the next year <laughs> well bill and melinda gates might help you out i, I don't know, know. Right? Let's see. Mm -hmm. um well okay so the the you know the big the big money shot in 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 the book for me was the shoulds you know mm -hmm. there's a lot of shoulds that you know were outlined in in the chapter four there that kind of really laid out, okay, well, here's the recommendations that mm -hmm. we as a collective group, these climate champions that we spent a lot of time researching and collaborating and discussing and trying to identify yeah. all these. Then you said, hey, this is what we recommend. So let's go through some of those because I think that's hugely important to understand that all the work was kind of being, you know, done to this outcome to come to deliver this outcome. So yeah. let's talk about that. Let me say one thing about that uh, going in. And that is that this is not a consensus report. These are not recommendations that everybody who participated agreed on. Instead, uh -huh. we collected all of the recommendations that people made and included them in here because it's a, it's a, in some ways, it's not a brainstorm because these are validated recommendations based on hard experience over many, many years. Uh -huh. um, and so it, means that not everybody who participated would necessarily agree on every single one. Mm -hmm. 
but it provides an enormous sort of rich library of actions that the federal government and subnational governments and organizations can undertake to make progress and solve solve you know solve, get rid of some of the obstacles to success so i thought i would give an example of one um and like just think about what does that mean from an ace perspective um and there's so many to choose from but i thought it might be helpful to take one that's in the workforce um yeah. because i think that's that may be more relevant for your listeners because they cover all different areas of, of human activity um so this one's about workers at every level of the economy approach their jobs through a climate solutions lens that integrates sustainability goals into the everyday fabric of the workplace so if I was my brother, right, working in the shipyard, he'd be like, what? And and so like figuring out like, what does that mean for him? Like sitting with a group of shipyard riggers and saying like, what does it mean to think about climate lens and like doing learning with them in the context right. of their own community and their own work to think, um, what does it mean to do that in your area? It's not saying do this, it's saying, there is some aspect of your work that is influencing climate positively or negatively. Yeah. And here's you the things that we better. want you to look about. Yeah. Here's That's what we right. want you to think about and, yeah. and steps to take to, yeah. you know, it's interesting you brought that one up and, and I just encountered this today as a matter of fact, with a client that I work with. And, uh, you know, the, the idea was, well, maybe we should set up a separate call from the type of calls we currently do uh, uh, just to talk about sustainability. Mm -hmm. as it relates to climate, because yeah. it's all about carbon capture, carbon emission tracking, you know, because mm -hmm. the companies want to go zero net carbon by 2035. Mm -hmm. And so the work we're doing, it's like, okay, well, let's have a conversation around the sustainability aspects of the work we're mm -hmm. doing. And that's starting. I mean, yeah. this is a huge, that's right. You know, yeah. Lots of people you know, are doing it already. Which, yeah. They're way out in front. Right. And so I really... Sorry, ideally what ACE will do is ACE will actually find those leaders, right? Like through the, the networks and serving, they'll find those leaders already in those spaces and leverage the work they're doing and help them train others in other contexts, similar contexts to do the mm -hmm. same kind of thing. And mm -hmm. so it's not about somebody coming from a university necessarily in a taller neurology, you know, like it's about like, how do we actually take people who are doing this work or leading it to actually like, connect them mm -hmm. and link them with other people who need to be doing it, who, who are unsure and maybe want to. We hear that a lot, right? Like, well, I want to do something, but I don't know what to do. Well, that's the problem. Like, we need to solve that problem, right? You might remember in the last, the last time I spoke with you, Sean, we were talking about how I decarbonized my design firm. Yeah. The operations, right? Yeah. And I didn't know how to do it any more than anybody else does, but I decided to look at our operations through a climate lens for the first time. And it, it revealed to me, you might recall the story that I had two employees who had moved all the way to Palm Springs and were commuting to Long Beach every day. That's a hundred miles through rush hour traffic in the LA basin every wow. day, both yeah. ways. Right. Yeah. yeah. So 200 miles a day. And when I put on, looked, we looked at that through the climate lens, we said, holy cow, what are we doing here? Yeah. Um, and we had we had put up with the fatigue and the stress and the overtime that that created because people right. were losing their lives. And, I mean, their quality of their lives was diminished. They were exhausted all the time. And so we said, hey, you guys only come in once a week. We're going to do an experiment and see if we can have you guys work from home and be productive. And it took a couple of months to work out the kinks, you know. 
And, yeah. and since there was a fabricator who built exhibits for us, but in between their home and our office, we said, let's stop driving to the shop for meetings and driving back and then driving home at the end of the day. Let's have those guys do the shop visits when they're passing by, or mm -hmm. we'll have somebody else do it during on commuter. You know, it, it begins or ends their commute each day, uh -huh. right? So uh -huh. that they're not driving so much. We never would have, we put up with things that we loathed about our business for years. <laughs> And it makes you feel stupid when you, you know, when you realize yeah. you just lived with it. Mm -hmm. You put on the climate lens, the green, the green lens, and you say, holy cow, there's an opportunity here to solve multiple problems at once. Mm -hmm. Our carbon emissions went way down. Our quality of life went way up. Oh, yeah. Right. right. Yeah. And absolutely. Well, and don't so you this think COVID, is an example. Don't you think COVID's helped us with this whole in oh my society? Gosh. Oh, my right? goodness. Oh my. Yes. <laughs> How much does that help? I've been working remotely for four years. And right. so when COVID happened, it was like, okay. And granted, like, I don't want to diminish the actual pandemic. It was awful, but no, like, it's, it's the, not good, but no, but the innovations that we have in like virtual working in hybrid environments, all of that is incredible. And I have to say, like, one of the things we've, we've seen an actual disturbing trend in the workforce related to women in the workforce um, in COVID because of who's in childcare, in control of childcare, and like disruptions and everything else. But going forward and building out of this, it, the new things that we've learned potentially will offer us benefits um, in terms of female participation in the workforce because we can be more flexible, like what you're saying, Tom. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, it's it's much much better, uh, you know, uh, life experience now. Is you know working from home. I mean, I I I enjoy working from home. I think it's been great. Um, I'm saving literally 100 miles a day on my car too, and that time away. And and you know, it's you know, you think about that. I was like, okay, I did this for 15 years back mm -hmm. and or more than that, you know, back and forth. It's just, yeah, you you just um, it's been good, and and it's been an environmental positive. I mean, yes. think about the, the, you know, there's been a, po a positive impact on the environment because of this now, not so much on the health side, but. Well, and it also um, real, it also puts the light back on the environmental justice question because who's going to work and who's working at home, yeah. right? It's, it's not evenly, it's not equitable. It's not evenly distributed. And, right. and the pay for people who have to go out and go to work is generally lower than the people who can stay home and be safer. Mm -hmm. So, so now we see it. And you yeah. have to see things in order to fix them. Yeah, it's yeah. been exposed. Right, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Well, I think another one of those recommendations that I saw, and you, we did touch on it a little bit ago, which was, which was, um, you know, funding, uh, continuing funding these uh, mm -hmm. these types of um, nonprofit organizations pursuing these mm -hmm. types of climate strategies to help change mm -hmm. the uh, hearts mm -hmm. and minds of uh, of society and and younger generations as they come up. I mean, I do think that. Uh, the younger generation coming up are much more uh, environmentally aware of, mm -hmm. of these types of uh, challenges or, that we face compared to say the, you know, the Gen Xers mm -hmm. and the Gen Z's, right? Or mm -hmm. I mean the Gen Xers and the baby boomers, I meant to say, sorry. Yeah. So, yeah. I think there's some really great, um, and I, I blame it or like, I think it's the, the benefit of the internet, you know, like I was, as I totally date myself, but I was like um, 19, maybe 18, 19, when I realized there was a thing called the internet. <laughs> so because it was new 
(laughs) So, so, you know, I'm thinking about how information is available now in different ways that the sort of second edge to that issue is, of course, all kinds of information are available right now that are not necessarily verified in any kind of reality. And so like more and more, I think what we need is not factoids about what is in the world because all that's changing very fast, but we need a way for people to really make sense of information. Like we need digital literacy and like critical thinking skills that are going to actually ask us to like interrogate, well, who's doing that? And why did they have the authority to speak on that? Or why do I believe them, (laughs) you know, at the very base level? And that's the kind of like, you know, it's not going to help me to tell you that climate change is real. It really isn't. Like what I have to do is like ask you where you see changes in your world and why you think they're there and like follow your train of thought and work with you on that. And so that's the kind of learning that we need. We need learning in mm-hmm. in the work that are the things, the communities we care about. Yeah. No, I like it. I like it. I think that's, that's really good. Um, well, so what's the path forward? <laughs> you know, what's what, want, what's going to happen with these communities? Yeah, one more thing on the funding trajectory that you're you're just saying. So, yeah. like, um, I have to say that the path forward and and then like path backward and path in every direction involves like figuring out how to fund coherent and equitable ways for people to participate in this work because education generally like learning generally is massively underfunded everybody's been to school they all think they know everything about learning but actually designing learning that's collaborative that's in you know like very relevant to what we're doing in any moment it takes Mm -hmm. time and it takes people and and to do it really well it takes coordination with other people and other organizations who are doing it so we don't have to like duplicate or like reinvent the wheel right and so yeah that kind of coordination is something that is just incredibly poorly funded it's poorly understood and so the more that we can get people thinking about that and i think the framework gives us some guidance for that and a number of other papers and things that we've been writing around this effort um gives us some guidance that that why that coherence is important and why that funding that kind of system is important so yeah Yeah. at any and every scale i must say Just as just one example to amplify what Deb's talking about, she and I were talking the other day about the the increased urbanization of Mm -hmm. our population. Mm -hmm. And there is a lot of evidence that says that that kids who grow up with unstructured time in nature tend to be the people who work to preserve the environment. Right. Mm -hmm. What does that mean for the the concentrations of people into cities how do we create education experiences not just in school but in people's lives that create the opportunities to connect with the with the world outside cities and build the kind of empathy and concern and care that that comes naturally to people when they grow up in those environments that's just one of one of many 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 issues that this educational coordination function and intentional design function that deb's talking about needs to address mm-hmm. yeah no good point very yeah, good point I can, I can see some amazing opportunities in the future where we have like learning in place kind of opportunities in farms in 
you know, oh, forested yeah. communities and all different environments and situations where people actually highlight the work they've done to live sustainably in those spaces. And that's a learning experience for many people who don't live in those kinds of places. Yeah, and that's like the new ecotourism kind of version, but it could be a really like viable, rich alternative to what's going on now. So, well, I think I think there's just the, the work you guys have done with this uh, this this book and 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 the the ACE framework uh, planning framework has just been great. Um, you know, I'm very impressed and kudos to both of you and all the contributors who have oh, you know, know. You know, spent a lot of time, right? I mean, no kidding. I mean, just, yeah. I know, I can't imagine all the time, but there's been a lot, I mean, a lot of sleepless nights just waking up thinking about stuff. Oh, you know, you're just, mine's <laughs> always awesome. going, right? I, I, I know. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, you guys are doing great things. I really hope that the administration picks up some of you guys to help them frame up uh, the, the strategy that the U.S. is going to do, uh, put forth. Um, and whoever the national focal point is that uh, they really <laughs> tap into some of you guys. I, I'd love to see that. Yeah, we're very hopeful. And, and a big thank you to all of the, um, you know, coordinating team members and all of the people who participated in these dialogues. It was just amazing experience. Yeah, well, we get so, the, so, we get to be in public hearing people tell us how great it is, but it's not, it's, you know, it's not our work. It's, it's yeah. no, it belongs to everybody who who was involved. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I really appreciate you guys coming on to show. I'm gonna I'm gonna show the book here uh, for the people who uh, haven't uh, seen it. Yes, uh, we all so, have one. Yeah, so make sure make sure we got three. There we go. Make sure you guys bring, you know, go out and pick up your book off Amazon or you can go to the resettingourfuture.com uh, website and, and order a book. And um, I know Deb and Tom would be greatly appreciative of you uh, doing that and, and for the work uh, that they've done to put this together. And uh, so thanks for the time, guys. This has Absolutely. been great. Um, I'm looking forward to seeing more good, good stuff come out of you guys and, and uh, we'll stay connected. And great. you know what? Maybe... We'll do another show down the road and just, you know, see what's the news, you know, what's what the, what the new outcomes have come out to, you know, present That'd themselves. That'd, That'd be, be terrific, John. Thanks. Thank you so much right. for having us. I want to thank our guests, Deb Morrison and Tom Bowman, for coming onto the show today. If you want to learn more about the ACE community and their work on developing a strategic planning framework for the United States to address climate change, well, check out their new book from the Resetting Our Future book series titled Empowering Climate Action in the United States. You can pick up a copy of their new book at www.resettingourfuture.com or from other retail outlets. We'll also put a link to their contact information on my website. To listen to future environmental transformation podcasts, you can check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and other podcast networks, or from my website at www.seankgrady.com. And you can also follow me on Instagram or the Environmental Transformation Podcast Facebook page. If you enjoyed the podcast episode, don't forget to subscribe and tell your friends. We'd also love to hear feedback from the ET Nation about the episode and any future podcast topics that you might like me to cover. And also, don't forget to leave a review. So thanks for listening, and until next time, make a positive impact on someone's life today.